0: Welcome to Economic Loss Practices podcast series. Today we shall talk about categories of funds under Indian fund regulations. I'm Vinod Joseph, a partner in ELP's Investment Funds Practice. And with me is Paridi Jain, an associate in ELP's Investment Funds Practice. And this is the first of a series of podcasts where we discuss funds and fund regulations.
1: I was preparing a comparison between the three categories of AIFs and also the subcategories within category 1 and started wondering why the regulator would want to have these categories. After all, the PPM of each scheme would specify where the scheme can invest and that portion of the PPM can be changed only with the consent of investors. Why have three buckets for AIFs to pigeonhole themselves into from the time of registration until winding up? That's an
0: interesting thought, Paridi. Let's analyze your argument and take it to its logical conclusion. Currently, Category 3 AIFs can invest in all types of securities. Category 2 AIFs have to invest a majority of their investable funds in unlisted securities, and none of the subcategories within Category 1 can invest more than 25% of their corpus in securities listed on the main exchanges. Further, each of the subcategories within Category 1 have a number of other investment restrictions. If we accept your argument, then AIFs will not be branded with a category, but the PPM of each scheme would specify clearly where the scheme will invest, whether it will invest in listed or unlisted securities, whether there will be any specific sector that the AIF will invest in, say uh, infrastructure or renewables or fintech. And these investment parameters can be changed only with the consent of two-thirds of the investors by value of their investment. Further, dissenting investors would have to be given an exit unless the change in investment strategy is approved by 75% of the investors by value.
1: Exactly. Also, I do remember that other than in the case of angel funds, there is no eligibility threshold or qualification to invest in an EIR, provided the investment amount is 1 crore or more.
0: You're right. That makes us wonder what we achieve by having these categories. One significant difference between CAT Three and the other two categories is that CAT Three can be either open-ended or close-ended. The idea is that funds which invest largely in unlisted security should be only close-ended so that investors get an exit at the end of the fund's tenure. But leave that aside and let's consider a scenario where AIFs don't have categories and subcategories. We may have AIFs without any investment restrictions. In other words, Category 3 type AIFs which are offered to investors who do not have the ability to understand the risks involved.
1: But it's possible to do that even now. It is possible to set up a category 3 AIF and offer it to anyone who can invest 1 crore.
0: Ah, but for the regulator, if AIFs are categorized, wouldn't it be easier to monitor them? Category 3 AIFs, though they can invest in all types of securities, usually invest in listed securities. Category 3 AIS will be monitored differently from, say, a Category 1 venture capital fund, which is required to invest 75% of its investable funds in unlisted equity shares or equity-linked instruments of a venture capital undertaking or in uh, listed companies. Also, uh, when approving applications for AF registrations, it's possible that the category in which the application has been filed will be relevant.
1: Oh, I get it. Now, even if the AIF regulations do not differentiate in the qualifications required for the key investment team of an AIF, the category for which the AIF has applied is relevant.
0: That's right. For example, if you have applied to register an infrastructure fund, the fund manager would be expected to have some experience in infrastructure investments, though the AIF regulations do not expressly require such qualifications. That's the regulator's discretion when granting registration.
1: And once an AIF is registered under a particular category or subcategory, every scheme rolled out by that AIF will have to be under that category.
0: Exactly. If the sponsor of an AIF registered under a particular category wants to launch a new scheme under a different category, a new trust should be set up and registered under the requisite category.
1: So a sponsor or an investment manager may sponsor or manage AIFs registered under different categories at the same time.
0: Of course, in fact, if an AIF has more than one scheme on the same vintage under the same category or subcategory, it would be important for the scheme to show some differentiation in investment strategy. Otherwise, if an AIF has two schemes which have similar final closings and commitment periods under the same category or subcategory, which also have the same investment objectives and investment strategy, there would be a conflict of interest for the investment manager.
1: Manager manages two distinct AIS set up under two different trusts, if they are under the same category and have similar investment objectives. I gather this conflict would arise even if an investment manager manages two distinct AIFs set up under two different trusts, if they are under the same category and have similar investment objectives.
0: They would. On a practical note, this never happens. A sponsor would never roll out funds or schemes with the same investment objectives and vintage with overlapping commitment periods. The big fund houses wait for a scheme to finish deployment before launching a new scheme with the same category and investment objectives. So when one fund is focused on exits, its successor is raising money and making investments.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And in Gift City, we have something similar, don't we?
0: Yes, the IFSC regulations have created three categories of restricted schemes, which roughly correspond to the three categories in SEBI's regulations. Eh, But it's not as simple as that, is it?
1: No, it's not. In Gift City, the investment manager, that is the fund management entity, is regulated and not the fund itself, as in the case with SEBI. And there are three types of FMEs and three different types of schemes.
0: Yes. But the FME categories are not distinct baskets. Rather, they are subsets since the registered FME retail can also do what the other two categories can do. And the registered FME non-retail can also do what the authorized FME can do.
1: Yes. Also, if one compares venture capital schemes with restricted schemes and retail schemes, the main distinction between a venture capital scheme and the other two types of schemes seems to be that a VCS cannot have more than 49 investors and each investor has to invest at least a quarter of a million dollars. Whereas in the case of a restricted scheme, the minimum required investment is $150,000. And these schemes can have up to 1,000 investors.
0: Interestingly, a retail scheme does not have a cap on the number of its investors, but is required to have at least 20 investors.
1: Oh, yeah. And the minimum amount of investment by an investor in case of a close-ended retail schemes, investing more than 15% in unlisted securities is $10,000. This seems There seems to be no minimum amount of investment in an open-ended scheme.
0: Yes, but remember, in case of an open-ended retail scheme, the maximum investment in unlisted securities should not exceed 15% of the total AUM of the schemes. So open-ended schemes still have at least 85% of their investments in listed securities, and hence they have liquidity, and the IFSC isn't worried about small-time investors. An open-ended retail scheme is practically like a SEBI-registered mutual fund. Even in case of an open-ended retail scheme, the maximum investment in securities of unlisted companies should not exceed 25% of the corpus.
1: But so what's the deal with close-ended retail schemes investing less than 15% in unlisted securities? Is there a minimum required investment for investor? Does this mean a close-ended retail scheme which invests 15% or less in unlisted securities does not have a minimum investment threshold?
0: No, it does not since there will be sufficient liquidity and liquidation will not be an issue for at least 85% of the corpus at the end of the fund's life.
1: Oh yeah, I understand. Even the differences in the types of investments which the three types of schemes can make and the types of instruments in which they can invest is also very interesting.
0: Yes, if you were to compare regulations 22, 34 and 46 of the IFSCS FMA regulations which specify the permissible investments for venture capital schemes, non-retail schemes and retail schemes, one would get the impression that There is very little distinction between these regulations.
1: Yes. The differences are very minor. Regulation 22, which lists permissible investments for venture capital schemes, does not provide for investment in derivatives. Regulation 34, which lists permissible investments for non-retail schemes, permits investments in limited liability partnerships, which Regulation 46 does not. So, Regulation
0: 34, which pertains to non-retail schemes that's the widest
1: yes it even allows a close-ended non-retail scheme to invest up to 20 percent of the corpus in other physical assets such as real estate bullion art or any other physical asset as may be specified by the authority from time to time
0: interesting remember a close-ended non-retail scheme can even be a category one scheme
1: oh yeah Though Regulation 22 lists a wide variety of permissible investments for venture capital schemes, Regulation 18 says that VCS shall invest primarily in unlisted securities of startups, emerging or early stage venture capital undertakings, mainly involved in new products, and shall also include an angel fund.
0: The operative word here is primarily, which means more than 50% of the investment must be as per Regulation 18, though the universe for investments will be as per Regulation 22.
1: I find the blurring of boundaries between venture capital schemes and Category 1 non-retail schemes to be fascinating.
0: Yes. The thing to remember about venture capital schemes is that they can be launched by any of the three types of FMEs. So when a VCS is launched by a registered FME, such a VCS can have more than 50 investors and each investor needs to invest only 150,000 US dollars. The below 50 investors rule, as well as the at least 250,000 US dollar requirement, which apply when a VCS is launched by an authorized FME, they fall away.
1: Yes, Regulation Thirty makes it clear that when a VCS is launched by a registered FME non-retail, it takes the color of a Category 1 non-retail scheme. But please tell me what happens when a VCS is launched by a registered FME retail?
0: That's an interesting question, Paridi. Regulation 4 makes it clear that a retail FME can launch a VCS. However, we do not have any regulation akin to Regulation 30 that would apply in such a scenario. Therefore, the only possible interpretation would be that when a retail FME launches a VCS, it would be bound to comply with Part A of Chapter 3. And with that, we come to the end of today's podcast. Uh, I would like to make the, uh, the the statement that this podcast is only for general information and should not be treated as legal advice. Thank you very much. We shall be back soon with something equally interesting.